Hi, this is Margot Seibert. I'm having a solo concert at 54 Below on October 15th at 9.30, featuring a lot of songs that you know, some songs that you don't from new musical theater composers. It's a really great night, so I hope to see you there. Check out our website for details. I'm Anna Lee Ashford. Hi, this is Queen Leslie. I'm Robin DeJesus. Queen Leslie Margarita. Hi, I'm Eden Espinosa. I'm Anthony Rapp. Hi, I'm Laura Osnes. I'm Katie Finnerin. Hi, I'm Tanya Pinkins. I'm Karen Olivo, and you are listening to the Theater People Podcast. Hello, fellow theater people. Welcome to episode 20 of the Theater People Podcast. I'm Patrick Hines, your host. Today's guest, Telly Leung, is an extremely talented actor, dancer, singer. Everyone knows that. But you know how some people just have it all? Well, he's one of those guys. You see, he discovered his performing gifts in high school, Stuyvesant High School, a super prestigious high school here in New York City, which only admits kids with tremendous gifts in math and science. So he's brilliant, handsome, and incredibly talented. His big break came in college, Carnegie Mellon University, of course, where future Tony winner Billy Porter cast him as Bobby and company. When the production was over, Billy made a call to his friends in New York who were casting the upcoming Broadway production of Flower Drum Song and got Telly an audition. And wouldn't you know it, he booked the job. From there, he was seen in Rent, Pacific Overtures, and most recently in the Circle in the Square production of Godspell. He was also cast as Angel in Rent at the Hollywood Bowl, directed by Neil Patrick Harris. And he is also well known as Wes, one of the Dalton Academy Warblers on Glee. And now he's the head of his own production company. He's taken on the role of producer for a new short musical film called Grind, starring recent guest Anthony Rapp. Seriously, there is nothing this guy doesn't do. It was such a pleasure to talk to him. Here's our conversation. Telly Leung, thank you so much for being on the Theater People Podcast. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Welcome. It's so it's so exciting to meet you. Everybody who's been on the podcast talks about you, and everyone's <laughs> like, Telly's the best. He's the nicest. And I'm like, well, then we need to just get him for the podcast. I was actually at an audition today, and uh, somebody said, somebody called me the Kevin Bacon of music theater. <laughs> everybody is sort of connected to me. And I said, well, th- that's great. That either means that I'm a super nice guy, and yeah. everybody does know me, <laughs> or I've been around for a really long time. Well, it's funny because... Because I was, I was going through the research and like and, and looking you up, and you've done so much stuff. You're yeah. like such a young guy. Uh, well, thank you, thank you. You yeah. know, I, I think I look younger than I actually <laughs> am. Um, I uh, I'm actually 34, and I turn 35 soon. So wow. you know, I'm not one of those folks that kind of shies away from my age. So, yeah. but I I know because I, you could I, play 16 right, if still, you had to. I still pass for I still pass for pretty young. So <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's all good. It's pretty good. and young. Oh, is what you. you meant to say. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, well, okay, we. Should should start by talking about your new movie Grind, which sure. you produced. Yeah, um, you know it's it's interesting. It's as an actor, you know, having been an actor for my first Broadway show was in two thousand and two, so it's been twelve years since I've been in New York and been a New York actor. You know, I I got to a point where I said I really want to start creating work and employing all these wonderful, talented people that I that I know that that I've encountered in the last twelve years of being on Broadway and being in New York. So. Um, uh, one of my, I went to college at Carnegie Mellon University, and one of my classmates that at Carnegie Mellon. School. Yeah, <laughs> one of my classmates at Carnegie, um, he actually was an actor for a little bit, but we always knew at school even that he was never meant to act. His name is Zach Halley. Uh-huh. And even in acting class, you know, Zachary was always that person that 
would give critiques and give notes, but at, at, with a director's eye, you know, or as a writer, you know, we we kind of felt like he was a he was an up and coming writer director type of person. So he he actually came up with the idea for Grind. Um, you know, he he's not an actor anymore, but he still does one concert gig a year, and one uh-huh. of his one of his concert gigs was actually to Moscow. Oh, to Russia. Like he went to Moscow. Yeah, he was in Russia, and you know, scary, fun, scary. He turned on his grinder. Yeah, when oh. he was in when he was in. You Russia. can literally go to jail for that in Russia. Yeah, in Russia, well, not here. Please, here you go to jail if you don't. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> but he turned it on, and somebody had said to him, "You know, I know you're American. Be careful." Yeah, I. Uh, there's actually somebody here who is luring victims using yes. grinder and yes. and and killing them mm-hmm. either as they're a psychopath or it's a hate crime or whatever it is some but, of these videos were on YouTube i mean they were po- they were bragging about it by posting it to YouTube correct so he literally he said he had such a such a reaction to it he threw his phone down and you know he lives in hell's kitchen as well and he he quickly realized you know in our hell's kitchen bubble in New York City in the neighborhood you know, walking along Ninth Avenue, which I call the dance belt. Um, it's, you know, he realized, he says, people don't, when boys meet each other on these hookup apps, whether it's Grindr or Jacked or Tinder or whatever it is, yeah. that they don't think about the consequences. They don't think about, do I, do I really know who I'm talking to? And what kind of assumptions do we make because this person is 50 feet away from me or they're the same race as me or they live across the street or they Completely. live in the same neighborhood? We just assume we know them because mm-hmm. they're the same socioeconomic background. Maybe they're in the same profession. Maybe they're all show people. So we just make assumptions, but we don't really know who they are. Yeah. And that's that's kind of the that was kind of what sparked this story in this project. Will you, Dan Fortune, Fortune has asked me very clearly not to give away anything, but Correct. can we talk a little bit about what the movie is about? Yeah. And it stars Anthony Rapp, a recent yes. guest of our my, podcast. Well, my dear friend Anthony Rapp, who I, I had done Rent with and is yeah. part of my Rent family, again, one of those talented people that I said, I really want to create some amazing showcase for him and his talent. He is just outrageous. He's so, so good. This walk feels like forever. This walk feels like a crawl. The park keeps all our secrets. The city feels so small. So I hide it its shadow whisper in the dark find a short encounter looking for a spark but the world outside is cold and i'm not looking to explain it would be easier to simply turn away but i do it anyway grind is a musical short film it's about 30 minutes long and it's written by derek greger um, who's a, an up-and-coming young composer, and Selda Zaheen, an up-and-coming um, lyricist in New York City. Again, two artists that I wanted to showcase. And um, and it's about these two boys who are roommates, Vincent, who's played by Anthony Rapp, and Fane, who's played by Pasha Pelosi, who is also uh, somebody who hasn't done very much, but we we're, it's almost like this film is introducing him in a yeah, lot of ways. he's Pasha, great in it, too. Pasha is actually um, an actual model. Uh-huh. And uh, for Mark Jacobs, and he's actually in in our story in Grind as well. He's that gorgeous underwear model that is the perfect epitome of what everybody wants when they go on a dating app or 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 an app like Grinder or Jacked or something. He's picture perfect, and he's kind of looking for love in all the wrong places. And he's on this app to try to look for a connection, a boyfriend, you know. Um, but he's though he's very sweet and he's almost like a puppy dog in a lot of ways uh-huh. he is not the he's not the most verbose and not the most eloquent with his words and he's not clever on these on the app whereas his roommate Anthony's character Vincent is very smart not as good looking as his underwear model 
roommate, uh-huh. but um, is able to be very clever typing grinds to to potential mates. So um, there's a little bit of a Cyrano story that yes. happens where Anthony's character, Vincent, actually starts grinding for Thane and starts getting Thane dates. And through the story, through the next 30 minutes or so, we start to discover a lot about them, too, as people and who they really are through through this kind of Cyrano story. But also, we 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 kind of discover how we connect now as a community in New York City. You mm-hmm. know, we see kind of other characters that start to interact with our two main characters through this app. And, yeah. um, and how connecting nowadays and trying to try, just trying to find a date is yeah. so different now. I mean, if you if we looked at our lives 10 years ago, this is not, you know, I've been with my partner for 10 years. This yeah. is not, there was I, no Grinder. I always there said, was I no, met my husband like a yeah. minute before Grinder went live. And yeah. I wonder what my life would be like uh, if, you know, if that meeting people From all my single friends who are out there meeting people, it's a very normal thing to go on yep. Tinder, to go on Grinder, to go on Jack, to, you know, yep. to, to go on Match.com or eHarmony. You know, that's kind of the way we meet each other now. We meet each other through profile pictures and profile stats and age stats and yes. how far is this person and you know I mean? yeah. like it's, it's so bizarre. No, no longer are we meeting people in bars. Right. Even people in bars are going are on their phones. Right. 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 You exactly. Know, it's so wild. So um, we really wanted to make a film that that talked about that kind of culture as well. And it's interesting because you guys have found a way to. Well, first of all, the music is unbelievable, and it's so different you know what i mean it's very rock music but it's not uh, i don't know i don't want to try to describe it for you well what what we were going for is um what's the sound of you know hell's kitchen new york city ended up being a big character in our in our story yeah so we wanted to go for what would the song sound like on a friday night in industry yeah therapy yes like exactly. we wanted to go for that sound that very contemporary pop top 40 a little bit electronic edm remixed sound that you would hear at a at a gay bar in, on fr- on a Friday night in New York City. I actually just was with our composer Derek Greger last night. And you know Derek is part of another composing team, uh, Greger and uh Carner. Carner and Greger is another is with his other writing partners and Carner wrote then they write tunes that are much more in the vein of traditional musical theater, you know, in that tradition of the Jason Robert Browns. Yep. They kind of have a very music theater sound. Um, but for Grind, it's interesting, you know, we were talking last night about how, when was the last time that we sat in a theater and the music made us groove the right. way that we would if we were listening to a song on the radio? You know, he was saying he was at a Broadway opening night one night, and I won't name the show, but he was saying this, it really was the light bulb moment for him as a composer when he was at this Broadway opening night, and it was a big, splashy Broadway musical, and then they all went to the cast party uh-huh. afterwards, the big Broadway opening, and everybody everybody that was in the cast was on the dance floor, grooving out to that top 40 beat, whatever the top 40 hit of the day was, you know, yeah. the, the Call Me Maybe, or the yeah. whatever that was, you know, and... um and he was like, why can't we replicate this feeling in the theater? Rent was really the last time that I felt, wow, this show really rocked. And I felt this. You know, for me, I also said American Idiot. I felt that way, yes. too. Watching American Idiot, I felt like this is this is that the same energy I'm getting from listening to the album. Yeah. You know, but we really, as a, as a goal, we really want to grind to have that feel, too. The movie I was saying to you before we started, it looks like it has like a $5 million budget. <laughs> I mean, it really, it looks so expensive. And it looks so, it's a beautifully shot film. Well, I think par- a lot of that is that we had, um, first of all, we had a great story and we had exciting 
people that were working on it so that when it came time to call for favors and call our friends with very fancy cameras that usually rented out for way more money than they rented it out to us and all the people that worked on the movie for free because they believed in the project and believed in the people in it, you know, it it truly was a, a community effort in that way. So, you know, even though it looks like it costs, you know, a hundred grand or two hundred grand. It actually caused a fraction of that. When we were we were kind of thrilled about the movie that we made because honestly, we would have made it if we had to shoot it on our iPhones and we only had two thousand dollars. Right. We would have shot it on our iPhones and you know with Derek Gregor playing a Casio on the side. Like we would have <laughs> we would have told the story anyway. But the fact is, we we had very generous supporters, very generous people in our community that donated their time and their resources, and also we we had. Uh, we had great supporters also through crowd fundraising as well through our, our Indiegogo campaigns. You know, so many people that are fans of Anthony or fans of Derek Greger or, um, or, or just were fans of this story and wanted to see it be made. They gave whatever they could through Indiegogo, which I think is, is amazing. And, you know, yeah. so we, we are indebted to them, indebted to those $20, $10 donations. Oh, it's all have. about those five, ten, twenty dollars donations. Is. Yeah. It all lets up. Where do people, f- what, what's happening with it now? It's, it's doing the, the circuit, right? Well, we're doing the film festival circuit and we've picked up several awards all over the country and actually all over the world as well. We made our big premiere in Amsterdam about oh. last summer. Uh, it was about a year ago. And then this whole last year has been about playing festivals and just getting the film out there and getting reactions, especially reactions from other filmmakers. You know, for a lot of us, this was our first kind of stab at this medium. You know, um, many of us on the team are familiar with how to do a musical, but then to put a musical on film was is trickier. You know? Right, of course. And, you know, I kind of, I, I, you know, from my short time that I was on Glee, I kind of soaked up everything that I could about what is it to put a mu- something musical on a screen. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, we asked our friends who had done Smash, like, how, how, did, how did you guys do this? You know, so, um, so we definitely wanted to get reactions from the film festival world about how the film played. It plays very well, and people were very excited by it, and we've picked up a couple of awards along the way, and that's great. Um, but now we wanted to really get, A, the music, and B, the story really out there. So we just released a five-song mini-album. Um, I partnered with my friend Michael Kreuter over at Yellow Sound Label. Mm-hmm. Um, Yellow Sound Label is a f- phenomenal um, label for Broadway artists. Um, you know, Cheetah Rivera is on the label. Alan Cumming is on the label. Chris Jackson. And also my album's also on that label as well. And Michael has also started producing cast albums. So he did, you know, um, he did Matilda. That was recently. He was just Grammy oh, nominated right. for the cast album of Matilda. He won several Emmys for doing all the music for Sesame Street over the last couple of years, you know. So um, I said, what about releasing something like this on the label? And this was exciting for Michael because he doesn't have anything that kind of has this electronic driving pop sound on his label, you know, right. of cast recordings and jazz albums and things like that. So um, we remixed the songs and we remastered everything and we've created kind of top 40 versions of the songs that are featured in the movie. And so where do people go to find it? You them? can find it on iTunes. You can find it on Amazon.com. You can listen to it on Spotify. Um, it, it's it's everywhere. And uh, so you can download that today, you know, yeah. if, you, if you'd like. And you guys, it's gym music. It's doing your housework Absolutely. music. It's like going for a jog. <laughs> I mean, this music is so I, I put it on when I run. You yeah. Know, it, it kind of has that 120 beats per minute 
you know, club feel, and it makes me run harder. It's yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, on October 1st, what we're looking to do is also make the film available for everybody to see, you know, because film film festivals are wonderful, and it's and it's given the film a wonderful showcase all over the world, but uh, now it's time for people to be able to view it on the internet. And where will they do that? I'm- you can do that on www.grindshortfilm.com. Right now, when you go to grindshortfilm.com, you see the trailer, the one-minute trailer of what the movie's about, and it's a good little tease, but... Um, but come October first, we're gonna. Everybody will be able to see it, and everybody will be. Just be see, they'll all be able to see. You know, Anthony Rapp uh, be stellar in this. Yeah, film, so. go so see it, you guys. It's so so good. Can we talk about you a little bit? Sure. Um. So I wanted to go back. I was. I was. I. I in reading just about you, I realized you went to like a super smarty pants, <laughs> mathy, sciencey high school. Yeah, it was a, a high school in New York City. Uh, I grew up in New York City. My parents actually, I'm from Brooklyn. I'm from Brooklyn. Wow. My parents actually still live in Brooklyn. And you same know, place. Same same place. And this is actually my. This is really my hometown. I'm one of those rare New Yorkers. Wow. You know? And um and I, I tested to get into a math and science school called Stuyvesant. It's, you know, it's math and science, and it's over 60% Asian. I know, so shocking. <laughs> the stereotype is absolutely true. Um, but when I was there, I, I kind of quickly realized that, you know, I, I had so many friends at that school who ended up being doctors and engineers and lawyers and biochemists and curing cancer. And, you know, they saw the world in molecules and physics and math and, you know, chemistry. And I, I, I was good at all of those things. And I was a good student, but I was never, I never saw the world like that. I saw the world through people and stories and relationships and how we connected to one another. And, you know, living in New York City, I took every opportunity I could to, when I was not in school, to get out of the classroom and go to museums and go to the TKTS booth and get a ticket for a Broadway show and meet people and, you know, and people watch on the subway in Central Park. And that was who I was. So I quickly, in that kind of heavily academic world, realized that wasn't me. <laughs> so when it t- came time to apply to colleges, I, I I did the exact opposite, which is then I went to an acting conservatory at Carnegie Mellon, where 12 hours a day, all you do is theater and speech and movement and elocution and accents and dialects and voice lessons and ballet and jazz and tap. I mean, it was, you know, so I kind of went from one extreme to the next. Yeah. yeah. I, I was, you have this great album called I'll Cover You, which is an album of covers. And I, I was really astonished to see Galileo on there <laughs> because I was raised by lesbians. So I grew up on the Indigo Girls, like my favorite band of all time. I mean, I've seen them in concert, I think 28 times. Oh yeah. I, I had a friend in high school who's on, worked for Lilith Fair. Oh, wow. Back in the 90s. And so Lilith Fair was, uh, I mean, for all of you who are, who, who are, were alive in the 90s <laughs> or just born in the 90s, Lilith Fair was a big music festival that celebrated the women of music and it started with Sarah McLaughlin. Yes. And she basically called all of her female friends who were in the business. I mean, I saw incredible acts. My Me aunt, too. My friend's aunt worked for them so we got free tickets every year. And oh. every year, the, the acts would change. You know, it would be Natalie Merchant, Tori Paula Amos, Cole. Paula Cole, even like Missy Elliott yes. would be there. Yes. And But the stand Every year, the Indigo Girls were there. Yes. And they blew my mind. And I just remember, like, being in that audience. And, you know, Little Affair is very popular amongst the lesbians. Yes. (laughs) Very popular. So you have to picture, like, little 16-year-old Chinese boy, me, in in the middle of a sea of lesbians. So when you went to college, yeah. your senior show was Company. <laughs> right. I love this story. I read this and I was like, no way. And Billy Porter, another uh, Carnegie Mellon alum, came to direct it. Correct. Um, B- Billy, uh, this was – for Billy, you know, he was at a time – it was after Grease yes. and after Little Shop and after all of those things. And he, um, he was trying to find himself – 
find out who he was as an artist, not just as an actor for hire all the time, but he was like, I want to try producing. I want to try writing. I want to try directing. He wanted to explore other parts of himself. Ironically, he at the time, I think he was 34, 35, which is exactly where I am as I enter oh, producing and doing other projects and recording and all of that and not just being the actor for hire anymore, going to auditions. Um, so he went back to his alma mater, Carnegie Mellon, and he directed company. And um, I got – and I was – his Bobby in company, you know, at 22 years old playing Bobby. <laughs> now at 34, I think right. I understand that role a lot better. But um, his first Broadway show when he graduated college was Miss, the original company of Miss Saigon. Oh, I didn't know that. So he knew his dance captain at the time was Mark Oka, this gentleman named Mark Oka, who's a Broadway gypsy. He's done like nine or ten Broadway shows and been a dance captain in all of them. And... Um, when I was in college, my senior year, he called Mark and he said, Mark, I have this Asian kid. He's my Bobby and company. He has no agent, no manager, no anything. Um, but I think he's great for Flower Drum Song. Which he was knew coming that, to Broadway. Which was coming to Broadway in the fall of 2002. And he knew Mark Oka was also the dance captain of that. So Billy Porter said, Telly. I got you an audition. Oh, my God. You're going you're gonna to go You're gonna go to your first Broadway audition tomorrow at 10 a.m. He's like, but – He's like, you can't miss tech because Bobby's in every scene of this thing, and I need, <laughs> I need Bobby in the show. Oh, that so is amazing. I teched company in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Carnegie Mellon, till midnight, took the, Greyh- the Greyhound bus from Pittsburgh to New York City, got off the bus at like 8 or 9 in the morning, went to Ripley Greer Studios, splashed some water on my face, and I was at my first Broadway audition. And you booked it. And that was, that was my first Broadway show. And I, went, I remember taking the bus back to Pittsburgh, seeing Billy and Billy being like, all right, Diva, how'd you do? How'd it go? And I was like, I think it went okay. And, you know, they kept me the whole time. And I got to, say, I got to sing all the songs and read the sides and dance and do the ballet. And he was like, mm-hmm, I know. I already got a phone call about you. So he already knew I got the job. So they, they gave you the job after just one day did, of They didn't tell me. They, oh, they, they knew that they were going to call me back. But Mark had called Billy and said, I think he's going to get this job. And um, and I told Billy, I said, listen, I, I know that you know if I get this and it's my first Broadway show, I know I'm only going to get 25 words in my playbill, but you know, four of them will be thank you, Billy Porter, at the uh. end. So I, I did. At the end of my playbill of my first Broadway show, I thanked Billy Porter because had it not been for somebody like Billy believing in me and sticking his neck out for somebody that he had faith in, you know, when you recommend somebody, you put your own reputation on the line, you know. So he he believed in me enough to know that I was going to go there and I was going to represent not just myself but him well yeah. at that audition. And um, and so for him to be able to do that is big. I, the, the crazy thing is now that I've been in the Broadway community for the last 12 years – I've realized I'm not the only person he's done that for. Oh, yeah. That there have been so many people in our industry that Billy has done that for and his generosity of spirit and his just faith in in other people and their talents and that they can do it. Um, and so you have to know that like when he won the Tony for Kinky Boots, uh, the, the, the outpouring of love, the cheers from everybody is so genuine because there's not another person in our business that deserves it more. Oh, you know, it truly is. It's yeah. like, I, I, I cannot think of another – seeing Billy win that Tony yeah. was so – it was like such the right thing to happen for the amount of effort and time and generosity he's shown this community. And it's uh, – you know, I consider – I still consider him a teach, my teacher and my mentor and um, a dear friend. That is amazing. Yeah. How did it work? Did you – you finish school and then immediately well, came to New York? Well, it was the end of my year. Right. So it was the end of my senior year and I remembered – I graduated, and then my final callback 
for the whole creative team and all the producers, and the final dance call was like the day after graduation or something. So I, um, I that's when I went back and wow. did my final callback, and then I still had a, a summer of summer stock work left until I until I started rehearsal in the fall. But um, you know, every summer during my college career, I would do summer stock at the Muni in St. Yeah. Louis, or I would do summer stock at you know the, the Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera, and. My whole generation of Broadway performers, I mean, that's where we, that's, that was our boot camp. That was our training ground. You know, when you look at all the people that got their equity cards at the Muni or at the Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera, you know, it's people like Shoshana P. Yeah. <laughs> Leslie Kritzer, Ash, you know, um, Ash, Ashley, you know, Mary Poppins, you know, before she was Mary Poppins. Oh, yeah. Got her equity course. card at the Muni. Do you know what I mean? Like, wow. You know, Colin Donnell. I was there for Colin Donnell's first Whoa. equity job, you know. So it was, it's, it's a, it's a wild, it's a crazy place, you know, it's, uh, but it's, it was the training ground for all of us. Summerstock. I- I wonder how it is like your tra- like a transition to living in New York can be crazy. How, how was it with the pressure of like making your Broadway debut at the same time? Well, you know, for me, I mean, oh I, wait, you're I, from here, right? So. And I, I grew up as a city kid, but you know, uh, because I was the city kid all through Carnegie Mellon, and you know, all through my 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 first year in New York. I was always the mom with a home. So mm-hmm. our home actually ended up, you know, my home with my parents in Brooklyn ended up being the house that everybody kind of crashed in while they looked for apartments. Oh, funny. So it's so funny. All of my college friends have all lived at, you know, Mama and Mama and Daddy Leung's And in they Brooklyn. just take them in? Totally. They make just them do. dinner? I mean, t- absolutely. Like, oh my God. it's hysterical. You know, I have very traditional Chinese parents who insist that, you know, if you're hungry, the worst thing that can happen is if <laughs> you're hungry and there's no food. So every time, you know, they come home, there would be a plate of noodles or like a plate of dumplings, like waiting for like just my friends. That and is I. amazing. It's, hyster- it's hysterical. And like, you know, my friends from college still are like, and so many people have crashed. So many people from my class, you know, people like Mitch Jar- Mitchell Jarvis and yeah. David Larson and you know all all these show people have actually crashed at my apartment before you know Leslie Oda I mean, like all my classmates oh my you know God. like all my Carnegie Mellon classmates That's have all so at some point lived at you know the Lee Young's house <laughs> we'll just have to turn it into a museum <laughs> in Bay Ridge Brooklyn <laughs> but I had one more question um, about uh, Henry David Huang oh yeah because he wrote the, he like rewrote the book. Or, or so it was a re- what he he it was kind of a revisical is kind of what they revisical, called it because like you know flower drum song back in the day was not politically correct I don't think it was it wasn't intended to be offensive but if we were to do it the way it was written back in the day today I think they would the, the Asian community would there would be an uproar about yeah. how stereotypical it can appear to mm-hmm. be you know we've advanced as a society now that that that's not the case anymore and so what David wanted to do was he wanted to really focus on the real immigrant story and he wanted to bring it back to a, a real you know because New York is at the end of the day America is built on immigrants, built right. on the back of immigrants. So he really wanted to focus more on that, and he did some rejiggering of the rejiggering of the book with with the blessing of you know Ted Chapin, the Rogers and Hammerstein Association, the late great Mary Rogers, who loved the show. Yeah. Like they all gave their blessing to David to kind of reinvent it and re, re rethink it for two thousand and two. That guy is so smart and funny. So smart. The only actual play I've ever seen of his was Chinglish. Mm. Did you see that? Yes. I mean, it's one of the funniest things I've it's, ever seen. It's hysterical. You know, what I, what I love is that, you know, in uh, having now known David for a while, like he, he writes what he knows, not just like what he knows as far as the subject matter and what it means to be somebody who's, a, who's an ethnic minority in this country and to be Asian in this country, but he, he writes 
he writes with such an emotional honesty that I, I really appreciate his work. You know, it's, he just gets down and dirty with yeah. what it really is, you know. So, um, and you see that in all of his plays, Chinglish and um, Yellowface mm-hmm. um, and Butterfly, of course, you see it, Flower Drum Song, you know. You know, so it's, um, I, I, I think he's fantastic. That's so exciting that you got to work with him. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. It's my that story that he, he you know, he he wanted Mei Li to be somebody that had to escape communism in China to to come to America, and the hardship of that, you know, sneaking away in a boat and being on a boat for months and arriving in San Francisco and that immigrant story of the late 60s, you know, and um, it very much is the same immigrant story of my parents. You know, my parents grew up in communist China in the late 60s, and for them, they were in the south of China, and just across the water from them was Hong Kong, which at the time was a British commonwealth, and they did what a lot of young people did at the time was that they escaped communism by actually swimming from communist China to Hong Kong. It's about Seriously? a seven-hour swim in the middle of the night what? to go to, to seek political refuge on, at the British Commonwealth. So that's that. It very much was, you know, it, it really hit home for me. To Your be a parents part of really did like that. that. They did that. Yes, my my mom swam. Um, and she recalls that she went to she went you know to the water to the water bank that night and with several friends and she's actually never heard or seen of those friends since you know she doesn't know if they're alive if they're yeah. dead if they have kids like her you know um, my dad they didn't meet they didn't meet in China they didn't meet till they got got to Hong Kong but um, my dad swam the first time and was actually caught by the communists so that, like bullets in the water and everything and he gave up and they sent him for escaping they punished him by sending him to a reeducation camp to the fields for manual labor, you know, to, to continue farming. Yeah. But when they, when he finished his time there, he actually tried again and he made it the second time. Wow. That, that's amazing. I wanted to talk about, um, rent. Yeah. Because you have like a lot of history with rent at this point. Uh, yeah, I do. Um, you know, uh, like many kids growing up in the '90s in New York City, rent, I was a rent head. Yeah, I was thinking like you were here when it when the rent non. I, I was going to say nonsense. That's not what I meant to say. The rent craziness crazy, happened. Crazy. It was '96. I was a junior in high school. I remember it very well. And thank God for rent inventing the twenty dollar rush seat. You know, they invented it. Thank you, because people have tried to tell me that it was twenty five dollars, and I'm like, no, 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 20. no. All of us who waited in that line know it was twenty dollars. We know we slept with the bums exactly. on Forty First Street <laughs> when, when before Disney came and took yep. over Times Square, and before I mean, they made it a lottery, you actually had to wait and you wait and had wait. to sleep there. And I remember getting there that summer. I think I must have seen rent like ten times that summer. Wow. And I remember you had to get there by four thirty or five in the yes. morning. Yes. For that ten o'clock ticket, for that ten a.m. box office to open for you to get your ticket. Yeah, um, and I made friends on the. I made like friends on the line on that rent headline, you know. Um, so, uh, so it, it was. It was the first time that I sat in a theater, and I remember sitting in the front row, and I had the most unexplainable emotional reaction hearing another, like another day into Will I. I remember that yeah. whole sequence when you know Mimi barges in yes. and, oh, and yes. sings There's Only Us, There's Only This, Ugh. Forget Regret. And then right into Will I when everybody's singing that round of Will I together that you're like, I, I remember just being like I'm 16. I don't know my life. I'm right. crying. Why I am I, why am I crying? Yeah. And it was the first time I felt real, genuinely moved in the theater just by the experience, by the, by the whole experience of it, the music, the lights, the band. The, all of it, you know, the actors. So, yeah. Um, you know, fast forward, and also, you know, it was the it was the show that 
you know, my first couple of Broadway shows that I'd seen, n- not to take any credit away from those shows, but I saw Crazy for You. Mm-hmm. And Crazy for You uh, it was a lot of Caucasian people on stage that all were the same height, that all had the same long legs, and yeah. they all could tap yeah. dance, and they all did the same thing. And that's wonderful. That is, there is, there is something very traditional and, and amazing about that. And I loved Crazy for You. But then, you know, the next show I saw was Cats, and everybody's a cat, so you couldn't really tell who those people were underneath <laughs> right. the cat costumes. But then Rent, I was like, oh, that's New York. Like, that's... Me, I, I could feasibly do this because I see myself up there. You know, I see people of every color, you know, black, white, Asian, Latin. I see men, women, everything in between, yeah. gay, straight. <laughs> right. Like, I just saw it all. And I was like, there's a place for me up there somewhere. So fat, to be able to fast forward 10 years and be actually in the show and then get to be part of the final company of the show yes. that said goodbye to it, that then got to reconnect with all of those people that I had worshipped like gods. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, to me... Because Anthony and Adam came back to close yeah. the show, right? Yeah, and I had done it with them, and I remember... <laughs> I mean, this was back in the day when I, I'm going to make a confession that I, I was one of those theater nerds that had bootlegs. Yeah, of oh, things, who, like I mean, VHS, VHS bootlegs and, like, au- you know, audio cassette bootlegs yeah. when you try to sneak into a theater with your little <laughs> tape recorder. It's like this Mimi versus this <laughs> Mimi, and then the understudy goes out, right. and you have to go yeah. back and record that one. So, and, you know, and of course, like, if, if you were a rent head, you remember that cast recording didn't come out for a while, so yep. we had to live on something. Like, we had to, <laughs> like, we had to live on some kind of bootleg. So, um, so I, I just remember, like, being in the opening number of Rent when Adam and Anthony came back to the show and being like, oh, I'm in my own bootleg uh, now. I'm in my uh, own bootleg is what it felt like. That is amazing. It was, I, I, we all felt like kids. I remember all of us. There's one, there's one section in the opening number of Rent called The Clump, and it's when um, Mark and Roger are downstage singing, and the rest of the cast is all in a clump upstage watching. And everybody that does Rent know it's The Clump in Rent. And we were all in the clump giggling because we could not believe we were doing the show with Anthony and Adam and it was a rock concert yeah when I say that we shut down 41st Street I mean we shut down 41st Street that day the cops didn't know what to do with for us. The, the last day yeah I mean when no when when Anthony and Adam were there the oh, first couple of weeks yeah they were not prepared and they were not prepared for all 1200 people in the theater to wait outside to see Anthony and Adam after the show they just weren't prepared Oh my god! So so finally, they st- the NYPD got wise and they said, "All right, we need you know we need blockades, we need cops." Suddenly, here, they're know. just rock stars. We stopped traffic on Forty First Street. Unbelievable. Eden Espinosa was on the podcast and she was saying that she would look at the seat that she sat in. Me too. Did you ever have that experience? Uh, absolutely. At that front row seat, I just remember singing Seasons of Love and every night I had to look down at that seat because I was like, I sat there. Oh my God, I, I could cry listening and we're, to you say and that. We're asked, and we're asked to do that. We're at, that's the one moment in the show that Michael Greif, our brilliant director, said, this is, you, I want you to connect to faces in the audience when you sing Seasons of Love. You know, this is, this is the message of the show and I want you to connect with people. Actually break the fourth wall and connect and I always did. I always found whoever was sitting in that seat. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting that that Rent Company, you know, it ran on Broadway for 13 years, 14 years. There aren't that many people that actually have done the show because people oh, kept going back into the show or right. people didn't leave like honestly if rent was still running today that's a show that i would never get bored of doing yeah you know and i i would still be doing it today if that was the case because it, it was a story that i loved telling every night and it was a score that i loved singing every night and it got still got me every night doing it. you got to go and do it at the hollywood bowl i did i did maybe if you could explain kind of what the hollywood bowl is for people who don't yeah. know the hollywood bowl is a giant the outdoor theater um, it's usually a concert venue in in the middle of Hollywood. It's seventeen thousand seats. Oh um, my god! I didn't and, know it was that and many. it's right on it's right on Highland Boulevard.
Boulevard. It's you know, and uh, it's it's huge. I mean, it's so big that you know you're you're projected onto a jumbotron, <laughs> two giant jumbotrons on either side of the stage. You know, and you you know, the, I've usually Hollywood Bowl. Usually, I think of the likes of you know people like Judy Garland or Barbara Streisand right. or Liza Minnelli playing the Hollywood Bowl or giant symphony orchestras. Well, they they've started every summer now doing a musical at the Hollywood Bowl, and um, it was a year they wanted to do Rent. Now, at the Hollywood Bowl, you only have 10 days to rehearse it. Oh, right. Right. So they hired a director who... Little um, known guy. A little known guy named no, Neil Patrick Harris. I don't know if you guys know who that is. Google. <laughs> but Neil is actually part of the Rent family as well because he right. was the first West Coast mark. So he was part of the family, and he, but he also knew 10 days to put Rent up is insane. So he hired uh, Tim Weil, the original musical supervisor, to come in and do it. And with all the couples, he said, I want alums to be half the cast, rent alums like me, and then the other half to be, you know, the exciting Hollywood names that you come to expect when you do a concert at the Hollywood Bowl. Mm -hmm. So it was very carefully and brilliantly cast by Neil in that, you know, it was, for example, it was me and Wayne Brady, who had never played Collins, but I was his angel to be able to play catch up with him Mm -hmm. you know um tracy toms who had been in so many incarnations of rent um you know it was it was kind of her job to kind of help nicole scherzinger at the time you know figure out her maureen you know um the same thing vanessa hudgens had never done mimi you know so aaron tveit whose first job was actually the the tour of rent oh wow covering mark and roger he was playing roger to help to help um, Vanessa along, you know, so it was it was very carefully crafted. Even the ensemble, there were a lot of new people, but then Neil cast a ton of people, including Gwen Stewart, the original yeah. Seasons of Love soloist, to kind of come on, and and it was it was helpful to keep, even though it was a new production for the Hollywood Bowl, and we had to adjust from you know the ninety nine seats they had downtown to the right. twelve hundred seats in the Nederlander to now the seventeen thousand seats. How to tell that story? But at the end of the day, it's still the same story, and it's still these characters, and the show is is really people. There's no, it's tables, chairs, lights, and people. There's right. no fancy witch flying helicopter, <laughs> right. turntable, chandelier. Not, there's anything nothing. wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that, but <laughs> the show lives in, it, it lives in the people in the music. Yeah. That's all it really is. You know. Did you have to audition or were you handpicked? Well, the funny thing is I, I auditioned, I just, I auditioned, I went in because Neil had never met me. So I, you know, through Tim was like, just come in and sing for Neil. And I said, great. So I sang all that stuff for, for Neil. And, you know, I had, I was always the will I soloist. I was always Steve who sang the will I solo. So they knew that I could do that, you know, in the show. Um, But then I got a call. I think something had happened with the casting and they were like, would you play Angel? And I remember being at my audition, and you know, this is why you never know at a casting process like what they're looking for, because I had already assumed that they had hired some giant celebrity to play Angel. Right. You know, so I, I, I didn't think I was auditioning for Angel, but at my audition, Tim was like, just for fun, can you do like today for you? Knowing that I'd covered the role for a long time on Broadway and that I'd gone on so many times on Broadway that that was easy, back pocket. I was like, sure, I'll do it. And I, I did today for you. So Neil got to see that. I was like, great. Well, somehow with the, the, the stars aligned that whoever was supposed to play Angel couldn't do it. And so I, I ended up stepping in and doing it. Wow. So it was, it was you know, a, a great lucky break for me to be able to do it and to do it in that space, you know. Yeah. My last question about Rent was I was reading that you were talking about what really introduced you to Broadway was the um, Into the Woods oh, VHS. Yes. <laughs> but I was thinking you they, they, they filmed and distributed the last performance of Rent. And I was oh. thinking that you're going to be that for some kid now. I mean, I, I, it, in so many ways, I, I to have people come up to me and say that to me now that they, you know, especially especially 
the, young theater fans now, you know, the young tweens and teenagers say, I watched you in that video of Rent. I, I could only think back to when I was watching Angela Lansbury in that video of Sweeney Todd. Of course. When I was watching Bernadette Peters in, in, in Sunday in the Park and yeah. Angel Woods and Joanna Gleason. And, you know, I, I, I'm like, the, we are now immortalized as, yeah. that, as that cast, you know? And, and, and it's, um, it's such an honor. And it was done so well. Yeah. You know, that's what I, I really appreciated, you know, all the Sony folks, the radical folks that produced it because they really, you know, and, and to know that also Michael gave his blessing on it. Michael Greif gave his blessing on it and said, this is the way the story should be preserved and told. It was, you know, we all felt so good about the way it turned out. And, oh, I love it. I wanted to talk about Pacific Overtures yeah. in 2004 um, for a million reasons. Uh, oh, first of all, this is like a little, this is like, let's see if you can do this. Can you, can you, can you say what that show is about in two sentences? Pacific Overtures is a Stephen Sondheim, John Weidman musical about the opening up of Japan to the imperialist West. How's that? You really are a genius. <laughs> um, I was reading this beautiful interview that you gave where you were talking about how it was a cast. In, well, number one, it, I read that you said that it was the first musical on Broadway ever directed by an Asian person. That knocked me off my feet when I read yeah. that. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, it's, it's true. And, you know, I, I, the story behind that revival is that Amon Miyamoto, this brilliant director in Japan, who's, who, to me, he's, he's like the, one of these superstar directors in Japan. It's like he's like the Sam Mendes of, of Japan because uh-huh. he, he directs in every medium, television film, theater, musicals, plays. He does it all. Um, and when you say his name in Japan, people are like, oh, Amon Miyamoto. Yeah. You know, um, he he did this great production in, in Japan of Pacific Overtures. And, you know, Steve and John Wyman had always said, you know, our goal when we did it with Hal Prince was to find a way to tell this story of the opening up of Japan to the West, but tell it through a Japanese perspective. Well, here's three white guys trying to tell <laughs> the story of that through a Japanese perspective. And though they were very successful in many ways in doing that, they said that having Amon do it and tell it through his lens as an actual Japanese person com- completely completed their vision 30 years later. They were like, that is what we were really going for. And we came as close as we could as three Americans. Yeah. You know, but, um, but, but having Amon there really was like, that's what we were going for 30 years ago. You know, having Amon at the helm, somebody that is actually Japanese, you know, there were a couple of Japanese people in our cast, but we were all Americans. You know, we were all Broadway performers and Americans. And I remember B.D. Wong, who played the reciter in our show, he said, you know, if Amon Miyamoto told me to stand on my head and read this haiku backwards (laughs) because it was Japanese, I trusted him. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, Amon, you know, throughout our entire process, everything from the way we walked to the way we bowed to our speech pattern to the way we smiled, everything he said, you know, it is so, to, to really take us to that other place, to that little island in the middle of the Pacific, we have to re- release all of these Americanisms and we have to, we have to really embrace the, the little Japanese idiosyncrasies that are just, that are cultural. And having Amon there was, was, was kind of our, um, was was kind of our shortcut to that. Yeah, you know? and he was our, he was our main cultural resource when we said, you know, is is this how a Japanese person would say this? Is this how a Japanese person would bow? Would a Japanese person look another person in the eye like this? You know, like yeah. th- there are things that 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 he he was definitely our source for 
what is what is really truly Japanese. And I think that at the end of the day, that's what the writers were going for too. Yeah, Erin Davy um, was. We were we were. She's another one that's on the show, and she she was in a little night music. She played Charlotte, and she said I asked her about working with Stephen Sondheim and how you know did did he ever give direction? And she she told this really funny story about how. Of course, I'm not going to be able to think of the lyric to the song, but if the lyric were, my name is Patrick Hines, you know, she said, no, 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 Aaron, it's not my name is Patrick Hines. It's my name is Patrick Hines. And she was like, uh, uh, like to him, it's so very specific. And because he is not human, you know, he's the super genius. Mm-hmm. And you had a similar story um, with the song called Someone in a Tree. Yeah. You know, he, that's, I mean, he said, uh, he has... He has said at one point that that was one of his favorites that he's mm-hmm, ever written. Mm-hmm. You know, he kind of calls it, it's like this um, Picasso painting of songs because it's it separates the senses and, you know, there's one character, it's one experience, but it's told through what you can see and what you can hear and, you know, and, um, and it's told through the senses and through such different perspectives, but it all meshes into one piece. And he, he had very specific notes about what he wanted and did not want in that song. You know, uh, my director, Amon, wanted me to be a very energetic, young, 10-year-old, innocent kid. So there was la- there, uh, it was a very happy, giggly, excited kid that had laughs and that would laugh and find things funny. And Stephen was very, he was very specific about, you can't laugh there. Like, there's no laugh there. I, I know I know that's the energy of it, but you have to, you know, it, it was very specific. And, and to his credit, you know, it, it made the story that he was trying to tell clearer. And Matty, some are old, some chatty. If it happened, I was there. I saw everything. What is the dynamic like between like Stephen Sondheim and the director? Do they? Do, does the director direct you, and then Stephen Sondheim corrects you, and then that's what stands? I don't know. I, I, well, with that with that process, you know, Stephen was actually around a lot for Pacific Overtures, more so than I thought he would be. Um, but he trusted. I could tell he trusted Amon wholeheartedly with mm-hmm. that show. So you know, everything was a. He's so collaborative. Everything was a collaboration. Down to I remembered, you know, it was one of the first music rehearsals we had. And of course, Paul Gemignani, who is mm-hmm. you know Stephen Sondheim's musical right hand in so many ways, was our musical director. And I remember you. You know, we were singing through something. I think it was, uh, I think it was Chrysanthemum Tea or something. And there was a section that was very, very low in somebody's voice. And so, you know, Paul just got on the phone and said, "Great, we'll change. The, let me call Steven and see if we can change the keys." And I was like, "What? You can, you can do that? Like, we can change the keys?" Wow. And he's like, "Yeah." He's like, oh, "Let me just call Steve and make sure it's okay." And I was like, "What? Like, we're we're gonna change the keys?" He's like, "Yeah." <laughs> He's like, you, do you want to sing it in that key? And he was like, no. You know, I'd love it for it to be a little higher. So they were like, great, great. We'll, cha- we'll, we'll, we'll call. just change it. We'll just call. We'll, we'll, we'll call and make sure it's okay. But, you know, the fact is that with we all think of Stephen as this titan, this, like, m- brilliant musical genius god. He is, at the end of the day, a composer and a lyricist and another kid in the sandbox. Yeah. He's been doing it for a very long time, but he is a collaborative person and theater doesn't happen without collaboration and he understands that. So 
I've, I've always found him to be nothing but collaborative. Of course, we all, if he speaks, everybody listens. Like the, room, <laughs> the room silences because we have such great admiration and respect for him. But, um, but he's collaborative at the end of the day. Your most recent Broadway gig was Godspell. Yeah. Amazing. Ama- I had never seen it before. You know what? I, I think a lot of people of our generation had not. Yeah. It's, it's def- it was kind of the, it was part of that hair generation. Yes. And, you know, I feel like it's something that our parents probably grew up listening to. Plow the field and scatter the good seed on the land. But it is fed and watered by God's almighty hand. He sends the snow in winter, the warmth to swell the grain, the breezes and the sunshine, the soft, refreshing rain. All good gifts around us are sent from heaven above. Then thank the Lord, oh thank the Lord for all his love. You guys started a paper mill, right? Mm-hmm. So how is it because you ended up at Circle in the Square, which is in the round, which seems so appropriate, you it, know? It, it is actually, you know, and it it just goes to show that, um, you know, Godspell after the Paper Mill run was in two thousand and six. There was supposed to be a revival that that was going to open in two thousand eight um, under a different producer and un- with a different team and everything, um, but the same director and a lot of the same cast. It was supposed to open in two thousand eight at the Barrymore Theater. Oh, well, the market crashed, the economy changed, and. X, Y, and Z happened, and that production ended up getting canceled two weeks before we were supposed to start rehearsal. So here I was. I I almost given my notice at Rent, actually, oh. that I, and I wasn't going to be part of the final cast because I was going to move on to my next Broadway project, and Rent was closing, and I said, I, I should really move on and go do Godspell. But um, two weeks before rehearsal, they were like, the, the show's canceled. I mean, this I'm talking about a full-page ad in the New York Times. Our marquee was up. Oh there were God. ads all over the city that said, prepare ye, prepare I ye. I remember that. And, and it was, and it, it, it just, it fell apart. I was wondering, because I I read that it was just you and Uzo Adubo. Am I saying her name right? Yeah, Uzo, yeah. That was the only other person that came from Paper Mill. And I was like, well, what happened? I didn't realize that it was from Well, that then, crush. so that was, I mean, that was 2008. We finally got to do the show in 2012, and even though we had lost a theater, and even though it was six years later, I felt like we ended up, we, now we ended up with the right producer, yes. and the right team, and the right theater, and the right space, and the right cast, and, you know, it just goes to show that when, you know, at, in 2008, I thought, oh my God, I'm, my, this is terrible. Like, I thought I had a job, now I have no job. I almost gave up one, one job to do this. I mean, it was, it was one of those things where I was like, I... Should I like I'm I quit? Yeah, like this crazy business, I'm done. Do you mean because it's like yeah. how can that happen? Yeah, how can that happen? You know, a, a full page ad in the New York Times, and we were ready to go. I had a fitting the day that I found out. I tried on costumes oh. the day that we I found out our show was. Canceled. I remember that happened to Assassins too, right after yes, 9/11. right after nine eleven. You know, so uh, so you kind of go, but but then you look back on now. I look back on it. And I go, oh, it was ha- it was supposed to happen mm-hmm. that way. Godspell had this really interesting thing where it was sort of crowdfunded. Were you, were you as a cast aware of of the, of, the, of that marketing? I don't want to say marketing, but that way of raising capital for the show. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It's um, I, I think our producer Ken Davenport wanted to try. We're sitting something. in his conference room. We're sitting in we're sitting in, <laughs> in the Davenport office right now. Um, he he wanted to try. He wanted to open up. You know, the show is about community. Yeah. So he said, why is it that 
why you know and that's what the cast represents it represents this diverse community a community of artists the show is about community you're supposed to we're in a theater in the round where community is fostered and you're able to see each other watching the show we're all gathered here together for the next two and a half hours to experience something together he wanted to create that same sense of community with the investors and the producers on the show so he says well you know why is it that only the people that can cut a check for six figures can produce a show if you wanted to be a part of something and you had a thousand dollars yeah why not why not be a part of something? And he was really big on making sure that you knew that even with $1,000, there was a possible return on your investment. Yeah, and people, you know, it was also the return on the investment. I also know a lot of people who did it just to learn what Broadway producing was all about, yeah. you know, because all, they got to kind of see, oh, this is the budget. This is where the money goes to a Broadway show. Oh, this is how much money you, you have to spend to do laundry on, a cost, on costumes. And right. This is how much money costs for rehearsals. And, you know, I mean, it was, for people, too, it was, you know, I know a lot of, a lot of my friends actually ended up being people of Godspell, which was, you know, the, mm-hmm. the program that Ken started so that people can invest a small amount. And they said they learned a ton. Um, okay, the last thing, and I will let you go. You've been so generous to talk oh, to us wow. for so long. Um, Allegiance. Yeah. So can you talk about what the show is quickly? Because it's not in New York. You guys did it uh, in, at um, the Old Globe, right? Correct, in San and Diego. And it, it may be coming to Broadway. We are, we're keeping fingers crossed that it's going to come to Broadway very I'm soon. So, I've been seeing ads on my Facebook for, forever about it, and I'm so excited to talk to you about it. Will you tell people what yeah. it is? Allegiance is an original uh, Broadway-bound musical about uh, – the Kimura family, it's a Japanese-American family on the West Coast, and what happens to them after the bombing of Pearl Harbor when they are forced to relocate to a Japanese internment camp. Um, this is actually something that happened in our American history. It's a very dark chapter of our history that we, as Americans, are certainly not proud of, so we don't talk about it very often. Right. Um, you know, there were thousands of Japanese-Americans all along the West Coast that were considered a threat to national security. So they were all forced out of their homes. They were forced to leave their businesses, leave their farms, leave their lives, and relocate to these concentration internment camps in the middle of America. Now, unlike the concentration camps in Europe, Japanese people were not being killed in these camps. Um, but it was – nonetheless, it was an egregious – you know, racist thing yes. that happened in our in our country's history. So, you know, it's the story is loosely based on George Takei's childhood because when he was five years old, him and his family, they were forced yes, out of their George homes. that George Takei, you guys. Him. George Takei. George Takei <laughs> from Star Trek. Exactly. Um, Sulu. Uh, he, he was for Him and his family were actually taken from, from, from their homes and put into an internment camp. Uh, and... You know, it came about the two the two original writers of Allegiance, Jay Quo and Lorenzo Tioni. They were sitting in in the Heights one night at the Richard Rogers Theater, and lo and behold, George and his partner Brad were sitting behind them. And there was a there was a moment in In the Heights called Inutil, a song that the father that um, that the father sings about how he feels inutil, useless, that he cannot help his daughter financially, you know, go to college, you know. And they noticed George had a, an emotional reaction to the to that song. So at intermission, they said, you know, Mr. Takei, you know, it's very, so interesting that you, you reacted that way. And he said, well, when my father also felt useless that he could not help his family during this time. And so it really struck a chord with him. And that's kind of where the collaboration started to happen, um, all the way back at the Richard Rogers Theater. Wow. In the Heights, in well, the then, Heights bringing people together. And then they and then they started doing readings and workshops of the story and um, developing the story. They brought Leia Salonga along. Yes, ma'am. Um, my, my dear friend, my dear sister from Flower Drum Song, along for the journey. Yeah. And then, and then they just, when they decided that the way that they wanted to tell the story was to use the concept of having an older character, old Sam, relive his days as 
a young person in the camp, they said, we need a young Sam. So I ended up playing, I'm mini George. (laughs) I play the young version of George in the show. I play Sammy in the show. How is it to work with those two? uh, It's, it's, well, Leia, you know, for Leia and I, it's a reunion. Yeah. And um, it's, it's so ironic, you know, Flower Drum Song was my first Broadway show when I was 22. And there were many Asian performers that made their Broadway debuts on that show, all of us in our young 20s. And Leia had obviously had been there. <laughs> you know, when she was 22, she already won a Tony. Right. You know, she was already leading a show. So she she was very much a big sister to all of us in, in that first Flower Drum Song company. Um, and uh, and it's, it, you know, I, I won't give away her email address, but actually her email actually is like big sis something. Like she loves playing the role of a big sister and a mentor obviously because now she's a mentor on the voice in the philippines you know but um but she she loves that you know so i've always considered her a big sister well fast forward a couple of years and now she's actually playing my big sister so you know when we got together it was no acting involved you know george is somebody that i've always looked up to as not just an icon in the lgbt community but also as an icon in the asian acting community you know Mm -hmm. he was that actor that was doing it when there were not that many asian actors on television right you know and getting to play mini him you know and he's been a joy to work with you know in the same way that you know amon miyamoto was such is, is a great resource for all of us who wanted to understand what it is to be japanese for me as an actor to understand what it is to be part of an internment camp all you have to do is ask george go george what did it look like what did it smell like what were the people like you know what did you eat all of those things that then flush out an actor's performance i have george because he lived it tell Leung, this has been such an incredible conversation oh it's been 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 such a joy talking talking to you for so long thank you i've had a blast so thanks for coming hey fellow theater people are you looking for even more theater people Check out our website where you can find all of our episodes, including our recent chats with Laura Osnes, Tanya Pinkins, Leslie Margarita, Robin DeJesus, directors Michael Mayer and Jerry Mitchell, Anthony Rapp, Eden Espinosa, and more. We're at www.theaterpeople.com. That's theater with an E-R-P-P-L dot com. Today's episode was produced by Mike Jensen, Vanya Arslanian, and me, Patrick Hines. Special thanks, as always, to BroadwaySpotted.com, Davenport Theatrical, Bradley Bean, Steve Tipton, the staff at Oswald's, and Ellen Marsh. We'll be back in two weeks with, wait for it, Tony, Emmy, Obi, Theater World-winning actor, writer, composer, the genius himself, Mr. Lin-Manuel Miranda. By the way, that guy is also nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, which is so damn awesome. Until then, tell your friends about us. Let's get the theater community talking. Hi, I'm Telly Leung, and you're listening to the Theater People Podcast.